Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. In today's program, we'll continue in Dr. Newfeld's series on Romans, the heart of the gospel, with a discussion of what the doctrine of faith alone really means. So join me in God's Word as we explore the topic of justified by faith in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. In the early 1500s, an Augustinian monk teaching theology at the University of Wittenberg in Germany made a discovery that recaptured the powerful message of the early church, a message that in his days had been lost but now was rediscovered. It eventually launched a world missionary movement and the salvation of untold millions. Martin Luther had been studying Romans, and out of his study came the rallying cry of the Reformation, sola fide, faith alone. The church in the Middle Ages had taught that it had been entrusted with something they called a treasury of merits. Imagine it this way. They said Jesus and the apostles and the saints were way better than you needed to be to get to heaven. And so they had all this extra goodness left unspent and it was lying around. And it turns out that the church had this extra goodness, a treasury of it. Imagine a big bank vault containing billions of dollars of goodness bucks left unspent. Well, these goodness bucks represented the payment that was required to get you into heaven. And the bank vault was in the church, and so the church had the currency to get you into heaven. And these goodness bucks were available, and you could buy them from the church, and they could be applied even to those who were already dead. And so you could get dear Aunt Martha out of purgatory and see her off to heaven. Of course, you'd have to get some of these goodness bucks for yourself as well as your spouse and your children. But you'd also had to pay for them. And so cash just kept rolling into the church. Of course, it was a scam. And these things were called indulgences. Well, behind this preposterous idea was the more rational idea that it took good works or merit to earn your way into heaven. But against this theology, because of his study of Romans, Luther responded. The pathway to heaven did not come by good works. It came by faith alone, sola fide. And that path to heaven did not run through the church, but it ran through Christ alone. So sola fide and solus Christus. You know, it's my belief that we're in danger of losing this message today. And what's at stake is not a detailed theological disagreement among ivory tower theologians. What's truly at stake is the eternal destiny of countless souls. I can't even begin to emphasize how important today's message is unless this message is proclaimed and unless this message is understood, there is no hope for salvation. Now, I'm reading from Romans 4, 1 to 5. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now the rabbis of Paul's day were saying that Paul had invented a new teaching and even a new religion. What he was saying, they argued, is not what the scriptures teach. So the rabbis taught that faith was not the opposite of works, 
but that faith was itself a work which could be credited by God to a man or a woman's account, just like keeping any other commandment. So as you obeyed the law and believed the law, we were earning goodness bucks for ourselves. So for instance, the Midrash, which is a Jewish commentary of the Old Testament, says this. It says, so you find that our father Abraham became the heir of this and the coming world simply by the merit of faith. So for them, faith, along with obedience, was a merit. It was something a person earned. Think of it this way. Imagine God as the employer and Abraham as his employee. Abraham is performing the duties his employer assigned to him. And after doing his work, the employer, who in this case would be God, is now obligated to pay the employee his wages. And after all, he's earned it. And so this view says that both Abraham's obedience and his faith is what God demanded of Abraham, and Abraham's compliance was seen as merit, a duty which he performed. And because God and Abraham had a contract, God was now going to pay Abraham that which he'd rightfully earned. Here's the surprising thing. I am amazed how many Christians today seem to believe the same thing. They tell God something like this, I've kept your word, and now you keep your word towards me. They think when they stand before God on Judgment Day, their works are going to count for them. Now, that's something like what you think. My prayer is that what I have to say today might just be the most liberating thing you've ever heard. And before I begin to explain this passage, let's be clear of what's being said. Paul teaches that justification means that we have a right standing before God. It means God approves of us. Paul thought of it as an instantaneous legal act. Think of it this way. I'm married. I have been for many years. Uh, The wife I married, the two of us, along with 350 of our closest friends, one day went to church together. Kathy and I stood in front of a pastor, and by the end of that ceremony, he made a legal declaration. He said, by the power invested in me, I declare you husband and wife. And the minute he said that, in one hand, nothing changed. We're the same people that we were the minute before he said that. But the minute he made that legal declaration, our status towards one another changed. And from that moment on, we began to interact with each other differently. But that is what followed the declaration. The declaration itself was simply a legal transaction that changed our status. Now imagine the same is true for us and God. Through the cross, God made a legal declaration. I declare you righteous. And as soon as God does that, our relationship between God and ourselves has changed. I'm now forgiven and given the legal status of a child of God. How did that happen? By faith. Sola fide. Faith alone. That's the only avenue whereby I am changed. This is what Paul is teaching. Now, Paul will say four things about this. First of all, he will say, this is not a new doctrine. In other words, this doctrine didn't start when Paul began to teach it. It was always the only way that any human being could be saved. God had to do it through a legal declaration. And no, people weren't saved in the Old Testament by keeping the law and by sacrificing in the temple. In fact, long before there was a law or a temple, people were being justified by faith and by faith alone. So, verses 1 and 2 say, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. 
In other words, if Abraham was declared righteous by his obedience or by anything that he did, he would have something to boast about. Why? Because if Abraham is the employee, just like any employee who receives a paycheck, he's earned it. He's simply receiving the merit of his work of obedience and faith. But, says Paul, actually, Abraham has nothing to boast about before God. What Paul will say is, no one has anything to boast about before God. God doesn't actually owe us a paycheck. God doesn't owe anyone salvation or heaven or forgiveness. God only owes us wrath and punishment for our sins. So Paul is saying that when I tell you about justification by faith, you're going to see that this is, in fact, not a new doctrine. Abraham was justified by faith. And now the second thing Paul wants to offer us is this. Abraham had nothing to offer God. Romans 4.3 says, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is a quote that comes from Genesis 15, verse 6. Let me give you the context. Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, is a married man, but his wife is unable to have children, and yet God has promised to make him a great nation. Believing that God would do what he had promised, Abraham leaves his home and goes on a pilgrimage. And along the way, he gains some very powerful enemies. He's just gone on a night raid with 318 men and defeated four kings in a surprise attack. But these kings could well be back. So Abraham is in a dilemma. He has no children, and he has enemies who could attack him at any moment. He's exposed and vulnerable. Then God comes along and tells Abraham not to be afraid. He tells him, I'm your shield, so when your enemies come, I'm going to protect you. You trust me. And God says another thing, your reward will be very great. And then one night, God and Abraham take a walk in the night sky. And God says, look up, count the stars. And of course, there are too many to count, uh, the Milky Way stretching out into infinity. And then in a moment that would change the world, God says, so you think you have no future, do you? Here now I make you a promise. Your descendants will be more than the stars you're looking at. Now that seems incredible. It seems unbelievable. And and what we're going to see is that Abraham's response to God's audacious promise told us how Abraham got to heaven. See, that's the whole thing behind the Abraham story. God was making promises to a man who had nothing. And Abraham was looking at God and hearing one promise after another and coming to this conclusion that God was to be trusted. And Abraham was declared then a righteous man. When we come back, we're going to see how this makes all the difference for us as well. There's so much to unpack from these few verses of Romans chapter 4 as we begin to understand the amazing doctrine of sola fide, faith alone. It's clear that we need to continue teaching that it's only through a faith that completely believes in Christ's work on our behalf that anyone can be saved. When we come back after the break, Dr. Neufeld will reveal how Abraham responded in faith to God's promise, and in turn how we might model that same faith. Thanks so much for listening. Have you heard about our Israel experience coming up this fall? From October 30th to November 9th, you can join Dr. Neufeld and Phil Calloway on a remarkable trip that you won't soon forget. Visit the historic and cultural sites of this beautiful country and walk where Jesus walked. Enrich your understanding of the Bible. You'll never be the same. For more information, go to backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. 
Now let's turn our attention now back to Romans chapter 4 with Dr. John Newfound. It was a cloudless, brilliantly clear night. The day that God showed Abraham the stars and told him that he would have more offspring than that. Have you noticed what Abraham had to offer God? Absolutely nothing. He had four kings gunning for him, and attacks seemed imminent. He had no children, and in the ancient world, that meant no future. He had nothing to offer God. Instead, God was offering something to Abraham. God promised him, I will protect you and make you the greatest, largest people group the earth has ever seen. And on that night, when God and Abraham walked together, Abraham pondered the stunning promises that God had just made to him. And then I imagine after a pause, he said those amazing words, words Paul would quote some 2,000 years later. He simply said to God, if you say so, then I have something to say in return. I believe you. And then the Bible says God credited righteousness to Abraham's account. God says, I am making a declaration this same night. I'm giving you a status. I call you a righteous man. But what can that mean? We've said that the doctrine of justification by faith is not a new doctrine. It's found at the beginning of the Bible. We've noticed that Abraham had nothing to offer God. Now notice that Abraham could not earn his righteousness. Listen to Romans 4, 4 to 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Let's start by noticing that little phrase, him who justifies the ungodly. Who's the ungodly person that Paul's speaking about? Well, if context is everything, the person Paul must have been referring to is, yes, Abraham. Let's get back to the rabbis in Paul's day. Let me quote from an ancient Jewish document entitled The Prayer of Manasseh. It says, Thou therefore, O Lord, that art the God of the righteous, has not appointed repentance unto the righteous, unto Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which have not sinned against thee. It's amazing. Paul calls Abraham ungodly, and Manasseh calls him sinless. Let me quote again from the Midrash, the Jewish commentary in the Old Testament. It says, The Israelites are able to uphold themselves on the merits of the patriarchs. So it's safe to say that some rabbis in Paul's day thought of Abraham as sinless and deserving of merits. For Paul, the question of what we should learn from Abraham is answered if we're able to see who is working for whom. Is Abraham working for God? If he is, then his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, when God said to Abraham, I count you a righteous man, did Abraham deserve that title? Was it his due? Now, to answer that, one needs only to go back to the life of Abraham. We first encounter him in Genesis 11 as a citizen in the city of Ur of the Chaldeans. Many years later, as Joshua is teaching Israel their history, recorded in Joshua 24, verse 2, Joshua says that Abraham and his family lived in Ur, and they served other gods there. In other words, when God first found Abraham, he was most likely a Near Eastern pagan worshiper of the sun and the moon and the stars. It's from the real-life situation that God called him. And later, while Abraham was on pilgrimage, he's forced to go to Egypt, and there he sells his wife into a harem. And indeed, he actually tried to do it a second time. I also think there is a sin in the relationship of Abraham and the fiasco that surrounds Hagar and Ishmael, if you know that story. 
But someone might say, but doesn't Abraham's obedience to leave the land of his fathers and journey to a land that he had not known, isn't that radical act of obedience something that we could count in Abraham's favor? Well, actually, not at all. Please understand Abraham's dilemma. Long before Abraham left Haran, it was already said Sarah, his wife, was barren. Let's remember what Abraham had. In Ur and later in Haran lay obscurity and no future. But along came God and offered him a great name. Indeed, his name would be the greatest of all the names with a great land and a great people. No, Abraham offered God nothing. All he did was tell God that when he promised him something great, that he actually believed that God was able to perform that which he promised. That's what faith is. And by the way, that's exactly what happens when any person comes to Christ. We don't offer God anything. I mean, what's there to offer? God doesn't need what you have. I know that some of us think that we offer God our fellowship. But think about it. That's silly. God is triune. That means that the one true God has always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the love of the Father and the Son, is himself a real person. The love of the three persons of the Trinity for one another and the eternal joy of their perfect relationship is so great and so glorious. Tell me again exactly what does your fellowship add to the perfections of the triune God. So let me ask it again. What can you offer God? Nothing. And that brings us back to Paul's question in the beginning of Romans 4. Who is working for whom? To the one who works, his wages are counted as his due. In other words, when you work for your employer, it's because your employer needs what you have to offer. That's why he pays you. It's your due. But we offer God nothing. So there is nothing we can demand of him. There is no wage for us to collect. The absolutely fascinating thing in Romans 4, 5 is that it proclaims that God, listen to this, is working for us. God doesn't need anything, but we need a lot of things. Now here, I could mention that we need God for life and health and our daily bread, and for that matter, every breath that we take. Romans 1 began by proclaiming that we owe God an infinite debt of gratitude for all that he has done. But that's not the issue. Again, Romans 4, 5. To the one who does not work, but believes God, who justifies the ungodly. Here's what you and I need. We're ungodly. We need God to justify us. So who's doing the work? Well, God is. We need him to work for us, to declare us righteous when we clearly are not. Imagine it this way. Imagine you're going to court and you find out that the crown is bringing charges against you and that the charges are overwhelming. They carry a, a terrible punishment. And as you're trying to take this in and the blood runs from your face, your lawyer pulls up a chair beside you, looks you in the eye and says, I know you're afraid, but listen to me. I promise to have you acquitted. And as you consider that, you say, I believe you. And that's what justification by faith is. It doesn't make us not guilty any more than a lawyer, a trial judge, or a jury can make us not guilty, but we can be declared not guilty. Well, how is such a thing possible? It's possible because Christ stood in our place. He was substituted for us, and you and I stand in Christ's place in relationship to our righteousness. 
And all that's required is for us to say, I believe. I throw myself on the mercy of God. And just like Abraham, God will look on you and make a legal declaration. Just like the day when God spoke and said in a universe of darkness, let there be light. Just like God spoke as Israel stood before the Red Sea and it was parted. Just as God spoke on that amazing day at the time of Joshua when the sun stood still in the sky. So God will look at you and he will speak. And he will make a legal declaration over your life. I declare you to be a righteous woman. I declare you to be a righteous man. That's how anyone is saved. And that's the good news. Satan, our eternal enemy, will do anything to try to hide that truth from you. He will want you to again believe in your own merits, in your own works, in your own internal righteousness or goodness. But you tell him, I don't believe you. I believe God. When he calls me righteous, I believe that I am. See, that's my prayer, and let's pray it today. Heavenly Father, if you say so, I believe. I might be overwhelmed by my own sin. I might be overwhelmed by a deep sense of guilt. But if you call me righteous, that just supersedes everything else that I believe. I believe you, Heavenly Father. Amen. John, thanks for the message today. Uh, As you said, we recognize through these verses that we have no merit of our own. It's all about God. It's all about what God has done. Yet some people take that to the extreme and say, yeah, I certainly don't have any merit, so I certainly can't come to God because I'm not worthy. What would you say to those people? Yeah, I would say this is the very doctrine you need to listen to. The, the truth is you have no merit. You have only demerits. And all of us have only demerits. What you are called upon to believe is that Christ has done it all. And you know, Ben, as I think about this, think about all of the people that you and I both know, and we've talked about some, who live their life burdened by guilt, never thinking that they're loved by God, always thinking that there's something left undone and wondering if they can possibly make it to God after they die. And this message is liberating. I mean, it's to say there is nothing you can do. Christ has done it all. You are justified by faith. Simply believe him. And that's what we're called upon to do. And I don't know that we can repeat it enough. I mean, there's something about our sinful hearts that just says, I don't know that I can take that in. But God keeps on saying it so. What a merciful God. What a great God. And we just thank you so much for bringing us to this passage today and helping us understand that we serve a God who's done it all through the cross. And tomorrow on Back to the Bible Canada, we'll continue in this same vein, looking to God, looking to understand who He is and all that He's done on our behalf. As we've just heard, justification by faith is such a glorious truth, but at the same time, it's a humbling one and very counterintuitive. I hope that you've been blessed by the message from Dr. John Newfeld. May it continue to help us understand that God alone justifies us by His work on our behalf and that the only thing we can do in response is to believe. Listen tomorrow as we continue further in Romans chapter 4 with Dr. John Newfeld. At Back to the Bible Canada, we're so blessed by the generosity of people across the country who believe in and support this mission. On behalf of the entire ministry, I want to thank those of you who have given at any time. 
I also wanted to share an exciting opportunity that we're offering today. Recently, a group of donors excited about the addition of Dr. John Newfeld to our ministry pledged $20,000 towards a match campaign to establish and sustain new daily Bible ministry programs to an additional 2 million people within Canada. The match simply means this, for every dollar raised in March, this pledge will provide another dollar up to $20,000. This campaign will mean so much in sustaining these new broadcast opportunities throughout 2015. We're extremely grateful for this opportunity to make an even greater impact across our country, and your gift this month would make that possible. So would you prayerfully consider making a gift today? There's no better time than now. To find out more, please visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.